Morning, Bible Church. Why don't you open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 12. And on your way to Romans chapter 12, reach over into your neighbor's Bible and circle the book of Romans. It's the whole thing. We have pens in the seat back right in front of you. We better pray. Father in heaven, you're so kind to send your son to be our substitute, Lord. What a perfect sacrifice. What a beautiful redemption. What a grateful heart you've given us, Lord, when you saved us. Thank you, Lord. We pray today, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would teach us that this wouldn't be in the strength of men, Lord, but this would be in the power of the Spirit-filled Word of God. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for this special time as the saints gather. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, from Greek mythology, you might remember a myth regarding a person named Narcissus. The story goes that Narcissus was a hunter from a city called Thespia in a region of Greece called Boeotia. Evidently, Narcissus was a beautiful man who wasn't interested in any type of romantic relationships with people because the myth says that at some point, he came to notice his own reflection in a pool of water and he fell in love with what he saw. He fell in love with his own image. In fact, he became so enamored with himself that he stared at himself, at his reflection, for the rest of his life. He had no interest in anyone else. And eventually he died, staring at his beautiful reflection. Everything else had lost interest. He could only pay attention to himself. And any of his other relationships had totally lost interest. And finally, he died. He spent the rest of his life focused on himself. By the way, the tradition of that myth says that when he died, uh, for you uh, growers of things, when he died, a flower sprouted in his place, and we call it the daffodil. That's the tradition. One of the unfortunate realities of living in a Christian, uh, living as a Christian in a fallen world, is the general influence that the fallen world seems to have on the life of the church and in the lives of each of us. And, And since the days of Sigmund Freud, the founder of psychoanalysis, true transforming soul care has been ever increasingly hijacked by a secularism that seems to have traded true healing, true healing at the depth of the soul, healing designed by our creator, secularism has hijacked that profound healing and substituted coping mechanisms and avoidance strategies in its place. Should have known this morning. Did you know? Do you know? In the in the, in a way that informs your life, in a way that changes your footsteps. Do you know that Jesus Christ is the one who transforms people's lives? Do you believe that this morning? And that the transformation, also known as the sanctification, happens through the ministry of His precious Word in the Bible. Do you believe that? Maybe you've been pressured or molded to believe the lies. 
What about when you have a difficult relationship with another sinner? Do you still believe it? In some ways, haven't we all been taught by secularism that it's, it's just easier to, to just throw a diagnosis at someone, kind of like a trump card in a card game, then there, there doesn't have to be any expectation of change. In, in fact, it's impossible. Maybe unless you take drugs, so then you can at least cope. Once the trump card's on the table, it's a disease or a disorder now. So there's no hope for change. Change doesn't even need to be part of the discussion. So the best thing is to cope and move on or move out. So you can avoid the harsh reality of living with another sinner like yourself every day. I want you to see this morning that God has ordained a pathway for change. Uh, Our passage this morning demonstrates the hope of the ministry of God's word through biblical counsel without any use of secular trump cards. And you don't even need psychotropic drugs. Listen with new ears today. Listen with ears today in the context of this subject to Romans 12, 2 and 3. Paul writes and says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. But to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Secular psychology uses a lot of tools to step in the direction of helping people navigate life's struggles. And these are well-intentioned people, and they're trying. Psychology Today has a synopsis of one of those tools that I wanted to discuss this morning. It's called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. I have it right here. I have a synopsis of that right here. The DSM. It's a guidebook, and it's used by quite a few secular mental health psychologists, especially in the United States. Psychologists using the DSM in diagnosing health or mental health conditions. It's published by the American Psychiatric Association, and it's been revised multiple times since it was first developed in 1952. Most recent edition is... Uh, for the DSM-5, is published in 2013. And for each disorder category, the manual indicates a set of diagnostic criteria, a list of symptoms or guidelines that psychiatrists and psychotherapists and, and other health professionals use to determine whether a patient or a client meets the criteria for one of the diagnostic categories. So today I'd like to focus on one of the included disorders that seems to have become a fad, a fad in recent years. And since the fad has been allowed to infiltrate the church, it's, it's really currently a common theme in our biblical counseling ministry, even here at Hayden Bible Church. In the major section of the DSM identified as personality disorders, there's a label listed called narcissistic personality disorder. Remember Narcissus? From the world's perspective and from the perspective of the fabled Greek myth, there was no hope for him. 
He was in love with himself. There was nothing that could be done. He couldn't look away from himself. In fact, he died staring at his own image alone without relationships. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual describes narcissism as a condition characterized by a pervasive pattern of grandiosity, need for admiration, lack of empathy originating in early childhood and manifesting in a variety of contexts. The individual has an exaggerated sense of self-importance, often displaying a conceited, boastful demeanor and overestimating his or her abilities and accomplishments. These secular diagnostic criteria are now being used to validate divorces and the splitting of families because there's no hope for change. No hope for real change. Yet these issues, these sinful tendencies are real tendencies and their repercussions are felt in the whole household. They are destructive. Grandiosity, the need for admiration, lack of empathy, self-importance, conceit, boastfulness, overestimation of abilities and accomplishments. But listen, guys. These characteristics listed as diagnostic criteria for a hopeless disorder in the DSM-5 are each handled in God's all-sufficient word. Every one of them. And instead of being a trump card to to be played to substantiate an escape, the loving ministry of the word gives hope for lasting change to the glory of Jesus Christ now. Today, we're exposing narcissism for what it really is. And we're shining the light of God's sufficient word on the seemingly hopeless diagnosis. In our counseling ministry, at times we use quite a few book resources. One of them is a a resource to help men fight to be free from pornography. It's called Finally Free by Heath Lambert. I want to share a quote relevant to our discussion about narcissism with you. Lambert writes regarding change. He says, you can't just get lasting change in your own strength and effort. You need the powerful, transforming grace of Jesus If you want to use Jesus' transforming grace, you have to do something so easy that many people find it impossible. You have to believe it. Transforming grace works when you believe that Jesus gives it to you. The moment you believe in Jesus' grace to change you, you are changing. Christians, the moment Jesus is magnified in your heart and when he is magnificent and you take your rightful place under his authority, once you align yourself to him by faith and obedience, once you believe, you begin to change. Once you begin to see that glorifying him is more important than taking your next breath, hope is kindled. Like John the Baptist, he must increase You must decrease. This is the same with every image restoration condition, including what the hopeless world calls narcissism. In a sense, our key passage today from Romans 12 seems to conflict with the notion that psychological diagnoses like narcissism are insurmountable. 
Back in our passage from Romans 12, a pivotal transition point in the epistle, by the way, after Paul has just communicated the most glorious and beautiful, detailed description of God's grace ever written in the history of the universe, the gospel that proclaims God's wrath against sinners, the gospel that proclaims all children of the first Adam guilty and condemned to hell, The gospel says that our only hope is to trust in the once for all sacrifice like brother Doug just talked about uh, for of God's only son, the last Adam, Jesus Christ, the God man who lived a sinless life, who grew up as a spotless lamb. He was nailed to a cross. He drank every last drop of God's wrath on behalf of his own people. He was killed in accordance with the condemnation of the law of God. And three days later, God raised him from the dead as confirmation that his sacrifice was accepted for the redemption of his precious possession, some of which are sitting in this room. And now he's taken his seat on the throne at the right hand of God in the place of all power and all authority, even on earth, even over the diagnostic criteria of the DSM-5, until all his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. Again from Romans 12, verse 2. As a result of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and you giving yourself fully to him as a living sacrifice, Paul writes and says, do not be conformed to this world. The world has certainly influenced our hope. In many realms, most of us at some level have been conformed to the hopelessness of this lost kingdom of darkness that surrounds us. Especially in this familiar realm when it comes to considering what professional government certified psychologists determine as opposed to the wonderful, merciful, transforming grace of Christ and the sanctification found in his loving household through his word. In the hearts of some, a label of a disorder of this magnitude seems to have overwhelming repercussions. And, And since it's a diagnosis... Just the fact that they use the term diagnosis is so intimidating, even Christians can be fooled into believing that all hope is lost. But that's not true. I want you to see literally what Paul saw when he was discipling Timothy. He says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable. It produces a result. Profitable for teaching and reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. Jesus Christ, the the ruler of the kings of the earth, has all authority. And his transforming grace is sufficient even for those with a habitually elevated view of themselves, a self-view that has even proven over time to be to the detriment of others. There's hope. Listen. There is a Redeemer. It's Jesus, God's own son. He's the precious lamb of God, the Messiah. A redeemer who liberally gives his Holy Spirit and transforms his own people into his own image. The image of God. Notice that the world is actively seeking to conform you to its image. 
The world is working to mold you and pressure you to conform to its likeness, to adopt its philosophies and its thinking thinking processes. And it's so subtle. It's so subtle when you watch your favorite movies, when you watch YouTube or the news or Oprah or Dr. Phil or TBN or even somebody like Jordan Peterson. It's a subtle molding, a conformance. You are being conditioned in a direction that is away from the all-sufficient word of Jesus Christ and his transforming power in his word. And if you're passive... If you just sit back and believe what the world tells you, you can lose hope that any change is possible. Don't do that. This mental disorder called narcissism, hopelessness, says that anyone diagnosed with narcissism has no hope of transformation. So I might as well get a divorce. I might as well escape this terrible circumstance This truly painful relationship. I need to be happy and I can't be happy here. And since there's no hope for change, I need to leave. But instead, listen to what the all-sufficient word of God says in Romans 12.2. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So that you may prove what the will of God is. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. Hope for transportation, excuse me, transformation, (laughs) transportation too, says the transportation engineer. Change, change is the norm in God's kingdom. But in the world of feudal thinkers, the dreaded diagnosis of a disorder is the loss of all hope. The dreaded diagnosis is a scenic view on the roadway, the highway to to destruction. Paul says, be transformed. Literally, be metamorphosized. Let that which has happened inwardly in the depth of your soul in the new birth, let that be made manifested outwardly in the way you live. By your ever-increasing knowledge of Jesus Christ and and the glorious implications of his gospel. By the power of the Holy Spirit. By prayer and the sanctifying, change-producing ministry of his word. By constant repentance and steps of obedience. With the hope of his glory being manifested in your life. As such, Paul Continues and he says, Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In a similar way with the Corinthians, Paul talks about the process each of us has as Christians is undergoing. He says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, he says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory. Just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Do you hear hope there? For change? If you do, the metamorphosis is already bearing fruit in your life. As our minds are renewed, as we gaze upon the glory of the Lord, we ever increasingly manifest the life of Christ. 
That's why Paul never pauses. You never hear Paul pausing to try to figure out where it all went wrong for him. You know, you, you know when he was a kid. And, and where, where, where it was that he became like this. The secret wasn't in figuring out what went wrong with his dad or, or what went, why his mom was defective or, or whether he was bullied or, or did he, that he did inappropriate things when he was growing up. He never looks back there. Instead, Paul teaches us in Philippians, he says, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that which I was also, I was laid hold of by, Jesus, or by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Friends, the world psychoanalysis says if you can figure out your relationship with a father or find some sort of forgiving existence in light of your relationship with your mom, your struggle with porn is finally going to disappear. Or that your bulimia or anorexia or your binging will finally be solved. Or that your narcissism will finally be more tolerable for your spouse or your kids. Of course, that can't be solved. That's not true. Truthfully, it's only as you behold the glory of the Lord as in a mirror that you are being transformed. So, so Paul reaches forward. He presses on. Paul knows it's a guarantee that every single Christian will be progressively sanctified and especially as we magnify Christ and all his glory in our minds. Paul doesn't get wrapped up in the hopelessness of DSM-5 diagnoses that only merely describe the sinful condition of people. He believes the transforming grace of Christ and walks out his life with full assurance and conviction based on the word. Paul expects he will change. He has faith in the transforming grace of Christ, so he presses forward. He endures. Back to the narcissism diagnosis. Remember that the DSM-5 defines narcissistic personality disorder beginning with grandiosity or pompous superiority or pretentiousness. I remember from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talked of the pretentiousness of the grandiose Pharisees, right? He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you that they have their reward in full. Life in the kingdom leads to humility. And sanctification to honoring others as more important than yourselves. In God's kingdom, grandiosity is overcome by the transforming grace of Christ. Can you even see that this first diagnostic, diagnostic criterion is addressed in God's word? God, it turns out God's word even addresses what secular psychologists call a disorder. Narcissistic personality disorder. It's, it's dealt with in God's word. 
Maybe you're not convinced yet. Let's go to the second one. Need for admiration. The need for respect and approval. The need for people to see you as impressive. In addition to the passage we just read in Matthew, which is a good example, there are, there's one of multitudes of examples uh, for the need for admiration in 1 Kings 1. King David was elderly at the time of this, of this um, scene, weakening, perpetually cold. He even needed blankets to keep warm. I love blankets, by the way. <laughs> so one of his sons, Adonijah, Scripture says, His son exalted himself saying, I will be king. I'm going to be king. So he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen with 50 men to run before him. Adonijah needed to be seen as impressive. So he surrounded himself with people to make him look that way, right? He manipulated his environment so he would be seen as impressive. He needed admiration, he needed respect, and he needed approval. And of course, you can read the whole rest of the story, yet scripture says in the kingdom of the greater David, the last shall be first, and the first last. Can you see that the ministry of the word rightly addresses the hopelessness of secular diagnostic criteria? You don't need the DSM-5. You need the Word of God. God's Word isn't blind to narcissism. Paul says in Romans 15.4 even, he says, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Why don't we conclude today that true soul care belongs solely to the church? That's where it belongs. Why don't you and I start ministering the words of life to those without tangible hope and start that among ourselves? We can do that. Our next criterion is lack of empathy or cluelessness when it comes to understanding or sharing the feelings of others. Do you have experience today with people like this? I do. It's like they can't even relate to you when you're hurting or you need encouragement that's not even on their radar. And it can be so frustrating to live with someone like that, like they don't love you because they can't see your pain or relate to your struggles against sin at all. But there is one who does relate. Hebrews 2, 17 and 18, Jesus had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people For since he himself was tempted, that which he was suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He gets it. The ESV study Bible notes well, it says that Jesus is a sympathetic and merciful high priest who knows human spiritual infirmities. Since he experienced the full range of temptations, he has and he has atoned for transgressions. Those of us who are his are being transformed into his image. We're learning to bear one another's burdens by, by, and, and thereby fulfilling the law of Christ, Paul says in Galatians 6. And, he, and as he is magnified in our hearts and we're transformed into the same image, the, the empathy or, or maybe better yet the compassion for others is kindled and we mature in loving people well. 
continuing with the DSM-5 diagnostic criteria, the secular label of narcissism includes exaggerated self-importance, conceit, boastfulness. I know you'll remember from Proverbs 26, wisdom, training in righteousness that counters these sinful tendencies. The proverb says, do not claim honor in the presence of the king and do not stand in the place of great men. For it is better that it be said to you, come up here, than for you to be placed lower in the presence of the prince whom your eyes have seen. Jesus, you might remember, uses these same ideas in his parable rebuking the self-important leaders of Israel, clamoring to get the, to get the best seats at the dinner table in Luke 14. And he beautifully completes the parable, and, and he says, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God just like we did this morning. In the kingdom of the beloved son, the kingdom of our Lord King Jesus, every seat is a place of blessing. There's no need to clamor for position. His grace is lathered all over each of us. I can practice that heart orientation by faith as I, and I seek to, as I seek to counter my own narcissistic or may, maybe more, more biblically my sinful tendencies with being a doer of the word and not just a hearer. Finally, the secular DSM describes narcissistic life as marked by overestimation of abilities and accomplishments. Remember how the things of the past were written for our instruction? Remember Moses from Deuteronomy 9. He has, and I know you'll remember this passage. As they were facing an occupied land across the Jordan River, he said to Israel, he said, Know therefore today that it is the Lord your God who is crossing over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them. He will subdue them before you so that you may drive them out and destroy them quickly just as the Lord has spoken to you. Do not say in your heart when the Lord your God has driven them out before you because of my righteousness the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. Proverbs 12 reminds us that the way of the fool is right in his own eyes. But the wise man listens to counsel. So we minister the words of wisdom to one another. Even to those who overestimate their own abilities, we don't throw them away. Because the spirit-enlivened word of God is the avenue for change. Can you guys see today a, a secular diagnosis of having some sort of disorder, which really amounts to what the Bible calls sinfulness, is overcome by the grace of Christ? Can you see it? In the power of the Spirit, through the ministry of this word, he brings about lasting change. Back to our Romans passage, Romans 12. Again, Paul says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. As we're renewed... As we're transformed from glory to glory, as we set our eyes on him and we're changed into his likeness, each of us is made to understand, made sensitive to understand good, acceptable, appropriate, godly 
response to the life that we're called to live out, the circumstances that we're we're called to walk through, all to the glory of Christ. We learn Paul's understanding that true Christian maturity, real sanctification, real soul care, actually leads to humility. It will happen. Again from verse 3, he says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound or sober judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. From start to end, the world's description of what they diagnose as narcissistic personality disorder is exposed in God's word as simply sinfulness. And Christ loves to wash away sin. And he loves to cleanse his people from all unrighteousness. He lives for that. It turns out that that there was no hope for Narcissus. He, He was hopelessly enamored with himself. His own image captured his gaze. And he died staring at himself. But God's kingdom isn't Greek mythology. God's kingdom is real. It turns out that scripture calls each of us out with these same tendencies. Even from birth, it calls us out. But it gives hope. Lost people are slaves to sin. Dead in trespasses and sins. Walking in the futility of their minds. And even born again Christians. Those of us living on the pathway of sanctification with a new nature. Yet we still have residual sin dwelling in us. The Bible calls it our flesh. And God commands us to present our members, our hands and feet to him as instruments of righteousness. Spiritual forces of darkness using the philosophies and the elementary principles of the world battle to destroy our hope for lasting change. But we don't have to bow. It turns out that the hopeless diagnosis of narcissism is actually the real myth. The truth is, the word of God will prevail. Listen again to Isaiah 55. He says, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but the water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the, to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word is infallible. By his spirit word, he accomplishes what he purposes. And and his purpose in, in your and my life is sanctification to his glory. I want to talk a little bit more personally this morning with you maybe you've maybe you've been diagnosed a narcissist or again more biblically a sinner in need of transformation like everyone else and let's acknowledge that there are varying degrees of sinfulness in these things along with varying degrees of approaches in dealing with them especially with the, when the safety of a family is at stake But maybe a loved one diagnosed you, or maybe even your spouse, maybe even a psychologist. I want to tell you this morning, I want you to hear loud and clear that there's hope for you. Maybe, 
Maybe you think that diagnosis is a trump card, but it's not. You're not a throwaway. But you need to sit up and listen. Maybe the things you've been accused of are unfortunately true. You don't know what to do. You've, you've increasingly become more and more this way. Maybe divorce has been brought up. The kids don't hang around you anymore. You even catch yourself thinking everybody's stupid but you. Maybe you blame your insufficient wife or your insufficient husband or kids for what you're, or truly your own insufficiencies. Maybe your manipulative tendencies are constantly transferring your own guilt onto people you should actually love. You can't break free of that cycle because if you did, everyone would know you're not the perfect person that you're portraying yourself to be. Maybe you consider pausing for just a second to look in the mirror. Maybe you need to come to the fountain. Instead of the pond where you gazed at your reflection on and on, day after day, maybe you come to the fountain of the Word. Look deep into the sufficient scripture, mirror the mirror peering into your soul. You know what you're going to learn? You're going to learn you have a big log in your eye, you can't see straight. Your warped view of yourself is bringing your world crashing in around you. You're forfeiting the loving relationships surrounding you because you're thinking more highly of yourself than you ought, just like our passage says. You're taking the place of God when you need to humble yourself under his mighty hand. Even the lost world can see it, so they diagnose you. Yet scripture asks, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Let me ask you this. How could you, a born-again Christian, destroy your family? And then continue to blame them for the destruction? Even as they're running the other way from you. And you never legitimately ask the Lord for help with personal change. Because how could you possibly think that... That there is possibility of change. Or how could you possibly even agree that you need to change? But how could you, a born-again Christian, berate your spouse day in and day out to anyone who will listen, and you privately manipulate and shame your family members for everything including which detergent they use, And at the same time, you lead them to church. And for pretense sake, you manipulate the rest of us thinking all is well. Maybe listen to scripture. Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail the test. Genuinely seek to know. If I'm describing your sinfulness this morning, are you really a born-again Christian? Because the word says that under the new covenant in Christ's blood, God puts his spirit in us and causes us to walk in his statutes and obey his precepts, and what you're doing is not those things. 
What you're doing is inflicting sinful, painful, terrifying darkness on people you should instead be serving in love. Are you a Christian? Or are you still in your sins? Are you still walking in the futility of your mind, in the lust of your flesh? Are you a Christian? Isn't that the most important question to ask anybody, even yourself? Even if you fail the test, there's still hope. Repent and believe the gospel. And you put yourself under the helping guidance of a a skilled friend, a brother or sister or elder or pastor at the church to help you see things clearly so you can be in genuine and healthy relationships and be free of fleshly and destructive ways. Again, swim in scripture. Be immersed in God's word. It's the genuine diagnostic and statistical manual. Listen to the words of life as they peer deep into the depths of the thoughts and intentions of your heart. The scalpel of God that cuts deep, even to the depths of joints and marrow, the scripture says. The deep recesses of your inner man. Deeper than even a trained government certified psychologist can see. Deeper than that. Repent, Paul teaches us in Romans 12.3. Change your thinking. Think so as to have sound judgment. Do not be haughty in mind, he says later in 12.16. Do not be wise in your own estimation. There's hope for you. There's hope even if you don't think you need hope. The process of change starts with your repentance. Or maybe on the other hand... Maybe you're the one living with the other end, the receiving end. And you've diagnosed someone as a narcissist. narcissist. What do you do? What are some possibilities? I want to acknowledge your profound daily, minute-by-minute anguish and pain. It is hard to live with somebody with these sinful tendencies. This is truly someone who lives with someone who manipulates and hurts and shames and criticizes and blames everyone else for what they're responsible for is a serious, biblical, fiery trial. That's true. Some people leave. And and even in extreme cases, sometimes for safety, that's necessary for a season. Maybe you leave simply because in your mind the, the prognosis is hopelessness. Especially if there's been a secular diagnosis given like narcissistic personality disorder. It's like that gives strength to your personal resolve to escape and be happy. And anyone would understand that. But, but what if today, what if you rethink your whole approach to this difficult person that you're living with? First of all, for any of us in any difficult situation, step one should include the ministry of the word to yourself to make sure that it's not you. Maybe your own, you own some of this. Maybe, as we know, each party has a log in their eye and it's just plain hard to see with that kind of a handicap, isn't it? So the word 
is our touchstone. And, and finding a skilled friend, again, someone at church skilled in the word of God to help you see clearly might be beneficial. All of us have trouble seeing situations clearly when we're drowning and swimming around right in them, when, especially when they're painful. Paul says in Galatians 6.1, be careful that you aren't getting your feet stuck in the same sinfulness that you recognize in someone else as you think through these things. So wouldn't it be best to have another set of unbiased eyes to just to make sure it's not you first, okay? That's responsible Christian living. And again, if you, be, if you begin to see that there's indeed a problem outside of yourself, maybe with the skill of a friend or elder or pastor to walk with you, you could work together, as, as, first, as Peter says in 1 Peter 1, to prepare your minds for action. To prepare for how to address this undesirable situation, this undesirable relational problem. Maybe bathed in prayer, you make a plan, you ask the Lord to direct your steps. And next, as difficult as this notion sounds, your persevering godly presence in this situation could lead the sinful, hurtful person to the Lord. It could. In the case of a wife, as an example, 1 Peter 3, Peter teaches wives to be submissive to your own husband so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, They may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. And first in Peter, you see obedience and disobedience appear to be synonymous with whether or not you're a Christian. Your perseverance in this situation could end up in the salvation of a lost soul. Certainly, as a church family, it would be our responsibility before the Lord to walk with you in this. You're in a family. And you have a difficult, painful ministry. To walk with you, to build you and strengthen you in ways that God has equipped so that you can serve in this situation. And to be a source of safety if that should be necessary at times, depending on how extreme the situation is. You need to learn to receive your strength for this mission field from the Lord. This is serious. It's painful, and at times it's frightening business to be involved with. And you need the Lord's profound grace to endure these types of trials. Fellowship and corporate body life is really important for you. Another approach we can take, if you would allow, again, of course... Bathed in prayer is to partner with your church leaders or a biblical counseling team member to to develop a plan to address the situation in the safety of supervised conversations. Maybe where you have an advocate to help navigate the manipulation in the immediacy of an open discussion that would hopefully lead to bringing the sinfulness out in the open, light shining on darkness. These types of conversations are helpful in starting to discern what the right approach of restoration might be. These are hard things. They're dynamic. They're really challenging. And and at times, even the local authorities sometimes need to be involved, depending on the depth of the sinfulness. 
But through the ministry of the word and the graceful work of his spirit, there's hope for godliness to prevail. Every approach, multitudes, and in additions to these few approaches that I've mentioned, all can be done with loving, gentle respect in the faithful hope of restoration. Saints, I want you to see this morning that there are alternatives to simply coping with a diagnosis in these situations and avoidance doesn't assist in lasting change. The diagnosis isn't a trump card. The sinful tendencies are an opportunity for God's grace in sanctifying a soul in desperate need of change. Narcissism is hereby exposed as sinfulness. All under the transformative authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to close today with agreeing with Paul as he writes to the Corinthians with the hope of gospel. the gospel. He says, he says the love of Christ controls us. Have, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but live for the one who died and rose again on their behalf. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for the blessing of your mighty word. Lord, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have hope. In the, in the in this transformation process, Lord, of, of being conformed into the image of Christ, the very image of God, we have hope. We pray that minds today would be renewed and there would be lasting benefit and fruit uh, out of the ministry of your word. And we thank you and we love you.